you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, again, we'll be revisiting. We've already preached through 5, so we'll be touching on that today as we focus on a theme throughout Revelation. As I mentioned, many people avoid studying or even reading Revelation, thinking it's irrelevant or it's too violent or it's confusing. And I'm going to address, at the beginning of this sermon, I'm going to address these three object, objections uh, and then share with you why I believe it is important. Revelation is not relevant, relevant people say, nor is it relevant, but it's not relevant. Revelation is not to be read like a crystal ball, focusing on the end times events. Many people see after Revelation 4 that deals only with the last seven years of existence on earth during the Great Tribulation and then the Millennial Kingdom. And so who in the world would be that interested in that unless we feel like it's right around the corner? But even then, you know, if, when it happens, it happens, you know? I'm pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. I don't really care. Much less the early church, before all of the signs and the fulfillments of all these prophecies were to come into fruition, why would they be interested in something that could happen hundreds of years in the, in the future? It's like asking you, would you please pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who will be facing very difficult times in the year 4000? Would you do that? We're not thinking of people who live hundreds of years from now. Was this relevant or not? It was relevant. <laughs> Revelation applied every bit as much to the first seven churches that we read about in chapters 2 and 3 than it does to us. And as it does to every church and every believer between then and now and in the future, Revelation applies to us. The time is near, we're told, in Revelation 1-3. In the first chapter, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. The early churches believed the time was near, and in fact, it was near. Many of the prophecies were fulfilled in their lifetime. When Jerusalem was attacked and the walls of Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, so much of Revelation was very applicable to them at that time. It was relevant, and it's re relevant to us as well. Second objection. Revelation is too confusing to read. Man, <clears throat> Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. The reader in the early New Testament times would have read to the hearers because people didn't own copies of God's word or scrolls. Secondly, many people couldn't have read. They, they couldn't read in those days. And so the speaker would speak the words, read through the scroll in Revelation, and those who would hear would hear the entire book, all the chapters, if there were chapters back then, all in one sitting, and they just stood there and listened to it. Was it confusing to them? No, I believe they understood much of what Revelation was speaking of. They understood the symbolism because they understood apocalyptic literature. The genre between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. was very familiar to them. They would have understood what the symbols meant in those days. They wouldn't have attempted to dissect every symbol and each phrase 
any more than when we go to a museum and look at this, this picture by Picasso, we'd say, okay, the animal up there and the top there, that animal, what animal is it? And I wonder what his name was and how old he was and, or she, and, and I wonder who owned, and the person on the far right, I wonder what the age of that person was and what family they belonged to and, and what, what ethnicity or what nationality. Or, we wouldn't dissect a Picasso painting that expressed World War II fatalities. We wouldn't. We'd stand in the museum, we'd stare at it, we'd take it all in and allow, allow it to um, speak to our emotions in the guttural uh, depths of our souls because that's what art does. And that's what Revelation did for the original hearers. It, it was like listening to a symphony and then they took it all in and they were moved and they were, oh man, the symbolism just communicates to me. Oh man, I understand this. They, they wouldn't have taken two or three measures from a symphony, taken it home and dissected it and, and thought, well, you know, this symphony is going to be a masterpiece because of these three measures. Or, or conversely, they wouldn't say this symphony, this orchestral piece is going to bomb because these three measures are a disaster. I can't believe. No, you're taking the whole movement. And that's what they would have done back then. They understood how to read Revelation rather than put it through a literal analysis or literary analysis. The early churches would have understood the meaning of the apocalyptic literature. These symbols that they understood would have been subversive to the established powers of Rome, the Roman Empire that, over, uh, that would have been over them. Unbelievers would not have understood the symbolism behind this, but it was for believers. Believers understood we need to study Revelation like we study the rest of Scripture. We need to ask, what did it say to the original hearers? What did it mean to them? And then finally, what does it mean to us? We're not to take the book of Revelation in one hand and the modern newspaper in the other hand and, and, or the internet and say, oh, see, that means that and that means that, see? No, we, we need to understand what it meant to the original hearers in order to understand what it means to us today and how to apply it today. We do this with the rest of Scripture. So Revelation would have been relevant and understandable to the original recipients during the threat of persecution in order to encourage them, in order to strengthen them, in order to comfort them so that they could persevere through the difficulties. But also it would have been re relevant to every believer from every age. Again, it's not a, just a crystal ball and if we, interp if we look at Revelation this way, a future, you know, the seven, last seven years, then we'll have missed the point of why it was given to us. And then the third objection, Revelation is too violent. Yuck, I don't want to read violence like this. I want to focus on the grace of God in the New Testament. Revelation seems inconsistent to what we know about Jesus, who is God's perfect representation on earth of the living God. Jesus, God incarnate. This doesn't seem consistent. At the end of time, Jesus is going to unleash all of his wrath against all these unrepentant pagans. Didn't Jesus, while he was on earth, live a life of nonviolence and teach us to do the same? 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful. They will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be known as children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they'll persecute you. Rejoice and be glad because great is a reward in heaven. And then the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 and 7, goes on to say, Furthermore, you're to love your enemy, Jesus said. You're to turn the other cheek. You're to give your coat, if you have an extra one, to one who's demanding it from you. You're to walk the extra mile. You're to pray for your persecutors. You're to forgive those who sin against you, not just seven times, but 70 times seven. You're to not judge those with whom you disagree. Uh, You're to walk the narrow road. You're not to live by the sword, because if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. So do not retaliate. Do not seek revenge, but bless those who persecute. Or, you know, and, and so that's the way of Jesus, right? Oh, no, no, yeah, okay, but Jesus, at the end of time, we'll see a different picture of Jesus. We'll see, like, uh, Jesus, the, the commander. Uh, we'll see Jesus breaking bad, you know, we'll see. Jesus, who is seeking revenge to slaughter all of his enemies, and we'll go, yes, Jesus, yes, do it, man. Give me a sword. Let me join you. This will be awesome. Ha, ha. And and that's how many people read Revelation. On Judgment Day, you pagans got what's coming to you. But that would not be accurate. We see a picture of Jesus on the white horse here, and Okay, I'm coming to get you. You better watch out. It's like uh, um, Sylvester Stallone and whoever he was coming to get you. Why is Revelation in, or why is Jesus so violent in Revelation? You know, the Battle of Armageddon and Judgment Day and all the horses of the apocalypse and all the trumpets and all the the, uh, vials and all the seals as they're opened, it becomes more and more violent. Well, we're told that God never changes. And Jesus is the perfect representation of God in the exact image. And he, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever as is Jesus. So why the change in Revelation? I think as we read Revelation, it's sort of like a Rorschach test here. You know, however, whatever you see in a picture like this will reveal what's on the inside. However you read Revelation will uh, determine your theology of how you view God and how you view Jesus. And then we read in Revelation 5 that Jesus remained consistent in his life and in his death. Some like uh, some people like Pastor Greg Boyd, who's one of my favorites, when he reads Revelation, he says, this is not a violent book, but rather it's the exact opposite. And in order to understand, unlock the uh, clues of the rest of Revelation, if you will, you have to turn to Revelation 5. It's the central interpretive text that'll pave the way for the rest of Revelation. First and foremost, revelation comes from the Greek word, what? Apocalypse. 
And when we go to movies that have apocalypse on them, they're going to be disastrous and chaos and warfare. And, but that's not what apocalypse means or reading into Revelation what was never meant to be read into. Apocalypse simply means to unveil or to reveal. What needed to be unveiled? Well, it starts in Revelation 5, verse 2. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And the Apostle John said, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Why was John weeping? It's only a pick and seal. Because no one could open it. And if no one could open it, then no one could really know the heart of God or God's truth, his purposes, his plan. And then in verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Yes, the early church would have read this. They would have heard this. And they would have thought, yes, the line of the tribe of Judah, the one that they would have brought great comfort and confidence to them. Because lions, after all, are ferocious. They're the king of the jungle. They're strong and powerful. They're conquerors. They're the ones who devour their prey. Jesus is back. He's going to annihilate those Romans and sit on the throne in Jerusalem and reign forever. That's awesome. This is what the Jews expected of the Messiah when he, he was to come. He would come as a conquering warrior, right? But instead, he came to us as a baby in a manger. And he grew up to be a young man who was a simple carpenter. He was an ordinary servant. And then his army, who would join him, well, this army was a ragtag group of nobodies. He came not as a lion, but he came as a verse, Immediately, John looked again, and in verse 6 we read, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the th center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits of God sent out onto all the earth. And this was not just a lamb. The word used here is, is a baby lamb, helpless baby lamb. Furthermore, it was a lamb that had been slain. It was bloodied. Yet this lamb was standing victorious in the center of the universe, at the center of God's throne. He had seven eyes and seven horns, depicting complete and perfect authority, power and wisdom. And we're told that the living creatures in heaven, these creatures worshipped him day and night. And then we're told that the 24 elders worshipped him. 24, as you recall a few weeks ago, 12 plus 12 is 24. 12 of the Old Testament tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, put them together. You have 24 representing people from Christians from all throughout the generations, throughout the ages. Chapter 5, verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of God's people. 
And then we're told that tens of thousands of angels worshipped him. In verse 11, the angels worshipped, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. This is the mystery of the seal that was opened. This is what was revealed to John and to us through revelation. The mystery is he is a bloodied lamb which stands for his victory. This is how he attained victory through his self-sacrifice. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your power you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. This was the unexpected mystery, the reversal from a lion, from a ferocious lion that was going to conquer all of Rome with his might and power and the sword and yeah, yeah, from the lion He said, no, that's not how you're to think of him. You're to think of him as the lamb that sacrificed himself. This is how he attained victory. All his victory hinged around his death on the cross. That's where he was slain, Calvary. And this is the theme of the book of Revelation, Calvary. His death is a theme throughout the New Testament. It's consistent, Colossians 2 how did he attain power? And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, these unseen spiritual uh, de- demonic forces. He, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, not by the sword, but by the cross. Jesus did not have to lift a finger to defeat Satan. The cross is a very strange way to defeat an enemy and attain victory. How was Satan then defeated at the cross? Through the death of Jesus, his self-sacrifice. Hebrews 2 tells us, through death, he, Jesus, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan was undone by his own demise, his own evil. You see, when, when Christ was on the cross, Satan thought he, he put him up there and he's going to unleash all of his wrath and all of his hatred and all of his vengeance upon him and all evil upon him. And that's what he did. But he killed an innocent man, first of all. And so, so all of that evil boomeranged back upon Jesus or, or, or upon Satan and it destroyed him. It stripped him of all of his power and authority that he had had since Adam and Eve gave it to them, him. His only authority then is the lie that he tries to dispel and communicate to us, that he's still in control. No, he's not in control. He was defeated at the cross. The only power he has over us, Satan, is the lie. And if we believe that and live in fear, then we'll walk in defeat. Hebrews 2.14, through death through death he destroyed the one who has the power of death that is the devil so again jesus didn't wield all of his power and might by way of the sword or by all the powers of babylon or rome or all of the manipulation and control but he defeated the enemy by his self-sacrifice cross of calvary 
And here's the application point for us. That's how we defeat evil in our lives as well. We follow the Lamb of God. We win even when it feels like we're losing. When it feels like everything is against us and Christians are in their minority, when we follow the way of the Lamb, we win. Jackie Robinson was the first African-American who was drafted into the major leagues by Branch Rickey, a Christian man. And in conversation, when Branch Rickey said, Jackie, you you can't show retaliation, you can't react in emotion, you can't respond to hate with hate. Jackie Robinson said, do you want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? To which Branch Rickey responded, no, I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. That's the way of the lamb. Jesus in his beatitude said, hey, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What a reversal. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. New heaven and new earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. The early churches were no match to the the monstrous Roman Empire that was ruling over them in those days. Those tiny little seven churches and all the believers, you know, they would have cowered in fear. Yet they walked in victory by way of the cross, by living the life of self-sacrifice. Paul said it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The way of the cross. How does that work? Well, it works like this. A young man went into his office complex. I heard this, I heard this interview on Christian radio some time ago by a, Christian, by a woman. This Christian man went into the office every day, and this woman hated him because he's an outspoken Christian. Just hated him, hated Christians. But every day he'd be kind to her, and she just fumed within And then one day he came in with two cups of coffee, you know, cappuccinos or whatever, set one on her desk, said, hey, I know this is what your favorite is, so I just bought that for you. She was like, oh, I hate this guy, oh. And yet, as she sat there fuming, she realized, man, I'm the one who is controlled by hatred and anger. This guy is free. I'm I'm just in bondage to my own hatred. And this led her to repentance and led her to receive the Christ whom she hated in this young man. And so she was the one who was being interviewed. That is the way of the Lamb, a life of self-sacrifice and unconditional love. He didn't win her over by manipulation or argument or control. He did so by service. Abraham Lincoln responded when he was asked why he didn't seek to destroy his enemies, but show them leniency. He said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? This is how we overcome evil, not by the power of Babylon, which is the ungodly um, structures, in our, whether they be governments or whatever, not by strong politics, not by anything like that. That's not how we attain our victory power over, retaliation, control, and manipulation, but rather by sacrificial love, even for our enemies and for other-centered service. Even in martyrdom, Christians were victorious. 
a picture of martyrs who died for Christ, worshiping before the throne. We read in Revelation 12, they triumphed over him, over Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They conquered Satan by persevering and not by turning their backs on Christ in the midst of the opposition. But we don't have to be martyrs in order to live the sacrificial life. The Apostle Paul says, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Romans 12, he also said, if your enemy's hungry, then feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. I used to think that meant if, I do, if I'm kind to my enemies, then they'll burn hotter in hell. Heap burning coals. I thought, yeah, I'm going to be, or at least I'll convict them so much that they'll be miserable. That's not at all what that means. What it means is in the day, if, if they heated their house with coals and then cooked their meals in, in coals, if someone doesn't have coals in the morning, then they will reach out to the neighbor and say, hey, do you have any coals I could have? And then if he's your enemy, you'd say, okay, I, I can spare one. No, Jesus said heap burning coals on their head. They'd put coals on their head when there are a bunch of them and carry them back home, and they would heat up their home, they'd heat up their meal. And so it said be extravagant with your enemy. That is the way of the lamb. Heap these coals of gifts of kindness, even on your enemy's head. Again, this is the mystery of the seal that was opened by Jesus. The world was not able to understand this. The Lamb of God who overcomes the world through his self-sacrifice. This is the mystery that you understand because you know Jesus. This is the mystery we understand, but the world has no clue. It's foolishness to them. And, and so Jesus subverted the meaning of this ferocious lion and replaced it with a sacrificial lamb who is the one who overcame the world by his death and reigns forever. Just want to conclude with this thought. So then, what will happen to the unrepentant at the end of the world? And I'm going to talk about this more next week using more images in Revelation. What will happen to the unrepentant pagans if they're not going to be judged by the wrath of God? Well, in the same way that Satan's evil boomerang back on him, so when Christ returns in all of his glory and, and righteousness and holiness, like a mirror, he's going to turn it on us and we're going to see ourselves for who we are. And anything within me that is righteous and holy, it'll be refined and, and it'll be salvaged and it'll be used forever and ever to glorify the Lord. It's what Corinthians, Paul says, it'll be gold and silver and precious stones. But anything within me that's wood, hay, and stubble and straw that was not for God, it'll just be completely decimated and wiped away, and it'll be gone. We'll suffer that loss. But we will, we will be saved. But all that we did selfishly will be lost forever, burned up, discarded. Now for the unsaved who never repented and came to Christ, then there will be nothing salvageable. Even their best works, apart from Christ, 
will be like filthy rags. All will be lost because they don't know Jesus and his righteousness. All will be burned up. Their very souls will be discarded and lost forever into eternal darkness, eternal separation, death and hell. In other words, Jesus doesn't have to lift, lift a finger. He just reveals himself. And it'll all be boomeranged back on them and they will reap what they have sown all of their lives. And they'll be literally disintegrated. Integer is a whole number. They'll, they'll be disintegrated. And this even happens as we look around. When I was a youth pastor in Salina and then in Indiana, I knew little kids as I do here, give them high fives and stuff. But then they grew up to be adults. And many of these kids who worshiped Jesus and they were really kind and joy-filled, I, know, I now know them as adults and they're far from Christ, some of them. Many are walking with the Lord, many are not. And it grieves my heart. But these joyful little kids have disintegrated. They've become less and less whole as sin has turned against them and they're reaping what they've sown in their lives. And their whole disposition looks lost and empty as I see them today on Facebook or in life. And so that, will, that trajectory will continue as when Christ returns. Decay, dis destruction, and disintegration. On the other hand, I've known people who have received Christ and, and they've been transformed, become new creations in Christ. People who are really broken, their disposition changes too, and they, they're radiant for Christ. Like, like Jim Kelly, who played quarterback for the Buffalo Bills in the day, and I followed him. He was a jerk in those days. He was arrogant. But then he, after retirement, he developed cancer and he came to Christ and now he's outspoken, radiant Christian believer and night and day difference in his disposition. We reap what we sow. So God's judgment, you say, won't be violent? Well, I read all throughout Revelation, there's going to be wrath, there's going to be bulls and horses and woes and Armageddon. Well, we're going to see how this revelation takes what we think is the power of Babylon, power over, and he reverses it over and over again throughout Revelation. Jesus is consistent. He's the same peace-loving, grace-centered, kind Savior, even in Revelation, than he was throughout in the Gospels. We'll see that next week. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, this should help us to know how we should respond by way of the Lamb, Lord. Um, and this is how you'll even respond when you come back. You'll have tears in your eyes when people who don't know you never repented and they're lost forever. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that we know you. We thank you that you are here. You are our God. Uh, you meet us at your table and you reveal yourself to us. So I pray that as we're at the table together now, by your invitation, that we will continue to hear your voice by your Holy Spirit and you'll continue to transform us and refine, refine us to make us more like yourself. In Christ's name, amen.